President Trump was arraigned today on federal charges and will have full coverage tomorrow. But tonight, we focus on New York's immigration crisis. Republican Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis joins us to talk about the depth of the problem and possible solutions. Then the nearly billion dollar push to transform Governor's Island into a first of its kind hub for climate solutions. Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, Dr. P. Roy Vagelos and Diana T. Vagelos, Estate of Worthington Mayo Smith. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. New York City's migrant crisis is showing no signs of letting up. More than 72,000 migrants have reportedly arrived since last spring, with over 45,000 currently in the city's care. In response, Mayor Adams has carried out a number of controversial measures, and perhaps the most controversial, his decision to challenge New York's right to shelter law, which essentially compels the city to provide shelter for all those legitimately experiencing homelessness in New York. The situation around the country here, and in particularly at the southern border, has become one of the biggest political issues as we approach the 2024 election. And one of the most outspoken critics of how this crisis is being handled by the city and by the Biden administration among New York's elected officials is Republican Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis from the 11th Congressional District. She joins us now with her thoughts about the current situation and what she believes are the steps that need to be taken to resolve the crisis. Congresswoman Maliotakis, thank you so much for joining us. As always, it's a pleasure to have you here with us. Great to be here. Thank you. So, Congresswoman, as I said in the introduction, uh, more than 72,000 uh, asylum seekers have arrived in New York City since uh, last spring, and over 45,000 are currently in the city's care. Those are the numbers. But how do the numbers reflect the reality experienced in Staten Island and in the parts of South Brooklyn that you represent? Well, as you know, uh, New York City has always been a, a beacon of hope and opportunity for immigrants around the world. Uh, and we have been a, a very generous nation over the course of history. The issue uh, with this particular crisis is that the president on his very first day changed a lot of the policies that have allowed this mass migration. And when you look at the court data, uh, 60% over the first year of the Biden was uh, president, 60% of those who claimed asylum had their cases denied. Uh, so we know that there's a lot of people abusing, taking advantage of our generosity to try to enter the country. They claim asylum and then they're not, you know, they don't actually, they're not eligible. What happens now is we're seeing this court system here in New York City backed up significantly. Uh, the last I checked, it's a decade to wait for an actual appointment. So um, those people who are true asylum seekers, those who have followed our nation's policies and laws and uh, have been waiting in the queue are now seeing that they are being you know, further delayed. 
And, you know, I represent a very diverse district. Uh, I have uh, immigrants from all over the world, right? Whether it be the Middle East, whether it be Europe, uh, Asia, uh, South America, Central America. And so, but, but the issue that I hear from my constituents, including those who are immigrants themselves, is that it's unfair what is happening right now. When, when they came to this country, they, they never asked for anyone to pay for anything. Uh, they, they, they just worked hard, multiple jobs, uh, like my own parents did. Uh, to sacrifice without any assistance from the government. So the system right now is completely broken. I think the mayor exacerbated the problem by misinterpreting the right to shelter law, which was a 1979 court decree. It was intended for homeless New Yorkers, homeless citizens. Uh, and misinterpreting that, saying that all citizens of other countries are eligible has created a, a real problem for our city that is a real burden for the taxpayers. Now, Mayor Adams, he also said recently that the city is a victim of its own success uh, because, quote, we have managed the crisis so well, people have the belief that, well, it can't be so bad. Is he right? I mean, in the sense that most New Yorkers don't see this as a crisis? Well, not not those that I represent in Staten Island and Southern Brooklyn. Uh, they they see it as a tremendous crisis. Uh, look, we, we know that... Uh, the, the taxpayers are now paying upwards, it's going to be an estimate of about $5 billion to house the individuals that are currently here. When you're talking about tough economic times and people having difficulty putting a roof over their own head, they're struggling to pay their rent, they're struggling to pay their mortgage, they're struggling to keep up with their property tax, which, by the way, has gone up every single year because the property tax levy has increased uh, by the city. Um, to tell them now that they have to pay for the shelter of these individuals to the extent that the mayor now even wants to pay their rent for an entire year or perhaps longer. How is that fair to hardworking New Yorkers who get up every day, they pay taxes, and they're struggling on their own to say that they now have to pay the rent for these individuals? I think what the mayor should be doing, and he has done this actually, uh, we're waiting to see what the court says, he should be challenging the right to shelter law, not just the law itself, but the fact that clarification that the law applies to citizens, uh, homeless New Yorkers, not citizens of other countries. Because by his, his interpretation, if all six million uh, migrants came to New York City, uh, the New York City taxpayers would be responsible for housing them. If, if, if nine billion people, eight billion people on the planet came to New York, You'd have to house them. So but, that, yeah, that interpretation is just lopsided. Well, that's his interpretation. Uh, and you say the, the the law was never intended to be that. However, um, Robert Hayes, the, the housing advocate who was chiefly responsible over 40 years ago to, to, to have this law passed, uh, he recently said, no, no, it, it's true. It does apply to these foreigners, uh, documented or undocumented. And he is fighting against the mayor's challenge uh, uh, to the law. So, 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 how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think there are those uh, left-wing groups that will continue to try to push. Uh, but, but the reality is, think about it from what I've been my perspective here. That if if everybody on the planet came to New York City and said they needed housing, would New York City have to provide it? I mean, that's something that's just incredibly impossible. We have our own housing crisis right now, both from the affordability and the avail uh, availability. What I would also suggest is that, and, I, and I've said this, and the mayor's done it as well to some extent, not as forcefully as I'd like. I think he should actually sue the Biden administration. Uh, but what he has done is, 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 is pushed back on the Biden administration, telling them, to do a decompression plan. I, I say just secure the borders, let's stop the flow, let's, re, let's re, um, 
reimpose the policies that were under the Trump administration, remain in Mexico uh, and the catching and release and making sure people do apply for asylum from the next safe nation as they're supposed to do under international law. As you know, the mayor, the mayor recently floated the idea of housing asylum seekers in, in uh, uh, private homes for a fee that the city would pay um, to the homeowners. Some have dismissed this idea outright. Some have mocked it. What's your take on it? I think it's a it's a terrible idea that's a slap in the face of the taxpayer. Again, we're dealing with uh, difficult times where New Yorkers are struggling to keep their own roof over their head. And now you're going to tell them, the taxpayers, that they need to pay to provide free rent to individuals who just entered our country last week. How is that fair to hardworking New Yorkers? And I understand that we're a compassionate city. But where's the compassion for the taxpayer? That That is the real no, question. I'm talking specifically about his proposal to pay for the city to yeah. pay home homeowners yes. voluntarily to take in, if they wish, to take in. Well, it's um, paid by somebody and it's paid by the taxpayer. They're not voluntarily taking them in for free. They're going to be compensated by the city at roughly $125 a night, which turns out to be you know between forty-five dollars and $50,000 annually per individual. That is a tremendous burden on the taxpayer. And again, when we're talking about cutting city services across the board, when we're talking about uh, increasing property taxes, when we're talking about things that the citizens, you know, are going to suffer as a result, uh, this is not the right approach. Okay, but the reality right now is that they're paying hotels a lot more money than that. But 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 that aside, you know, this proposal struck me particularly. Because, you know, like your mother, I think, you know, like your mother, I'm a Cuban exile. I came in the, in the, in the early 60s. Uh, and the way we came was through Jamaica. And we spend about a month in the, in the home of a Jamaican family uh, before we came to the United States once we got the paper. Now, thousands of Cubans got out of Cuba as a result of that. But more importantly for me as a little kid at the time was just how, how wonderful, you know, how warm, how how humane it was to spend those 30 days with that family. And I'm just wondering if it's just on that level, the idea has merit. Look, if people want to volunteer to open up their homes, that's one thing. Um, my, my mother, when she came, she was, had a family sponsor. And, and, and again, it was no expense to the taxpayer. I think most immigrants that have come here over the years were came on their own. They never asked for anything but the opportunity. And they they worked uh, sometimes, you know, multiple jobs, as my father did, to make ends meet, to be able to support themselves. The idea here is we are a welcoming nation. But when it comes to now saying we're going to house, feed, provide all these services that citizens don't even get uh, for free, then that's when it becomes a problem. Now, the problem could be resolved, right? We don't need to be doing this. We could be looking at the federal government for the solution. And I've said repeatedly that there's a number of things that can actually address this crisis. We passed a border security bill to stem the flow, but we also want to look at increasing visas. Our bill actually did do that for a certain industry, but we can look at um, increasing the number of employer-sponsored visas, increasing the number of family-sponsored visas, student visas, when people get, come here to get educated, why are they being sent back to their country? We, we should want to uh, in, appreciate their intelligence and talents and put it to work here in the United States. So there's that aspect of it. And But, but, but we also need to add judges and asylum officers to differentiate between legitimate asylum seekers and those who are not, that it has to be a distinction because the majority of those people who are coming are not legitimate asylum seekers. If you look at the court data, 
over the last couple of years. Um, and then we're talking well, about is, what, really quickly. What sure. is a legitimate asylum seeker? Someone who, by the criteria of of asylum, they are they are fleeing political persecution, religious per persecution. Um, there's a, a specific definition. But what we're seeing is individuals from a hundred different countries coming to the border claiming asylum. And so that's number one. And number two, they should be applying from the next safe country. If you're coming from a hundred different countries, the United States is not the next safe country. And that is why the Trump era policies at least put some type of order to that process where they would have to apply and remain, as you say, in Jamaica or elsewhere uh, until their court date came. Uh, but, but Congresswoman, under, under those definitions, most of the Cubans who came in the 1960s wouldn't yeah. wouldn't fit. I mean, we weren't under direct prosecution, persecution. I mean, my parents left because they didn't they didn't want to live without freedom. And they were afraid that my my father, my brother and I would be indoctrinated. But there was little chance that they would be arrested or killed. And that's the case for the millions, most of the millions who left. And and, and it's ironic. And, and in United and New York City, most of the many of the of the asylum seekers are Venezuelans which is a country that resembles a lot what Cuba did in the 60s. Uh -huh. So, I mean, if you yeah. do, if, unless you're very strict in the definition, some of these people really do. Many of them, many of them, especially the ones coming to New York City, they do fit the description now. Well, I, I believe that the people fleeing Cuba and Venezuela are legitimate asylum seekers under the definition, uh, as they historically have been. And let, let's be clear also, look what they're escaping. They're escaping socialism, right? They're escaping communism. You know, so let, let's be also clear, uh, you know, some of my colleagues love to support some certain policies here. You know, these immigrants are fleeing terrible policies put in place by socialists and communists. And so I would say that um, all hundred nations that individuals are coming from, uh, you would not qualify for asylum. But the, but the point is, right, we need asylum officers and judges to hear these cases quicker to differentiate it before an individual is just utilizing that to enter the country. When they apply, we should we should be hearing these cases, at least have some type of infrastructure at the border, which is what I've been saying. What's frustrating to me is that the House passed a bill that streamlined uh, asylum, that actually uh, increased number of visas, that protected children who are being trafficked, children that are coming over, coming over by themselves, um, and also implemented border security, yet we've seen zero action from the Senate. I would urge yeah. Senator Chuck Schumer to oh. at least take up a bill. If you don't like our bill, then pass your own bill so uh, the, we can the, reconcile the, bill, the differences. The bill that you passed, which you are one of the co-hosts, what is called the Border Act of 2023? Uh, border Security Act. Border Security Act of 2023. That includes, as you said earlier, it includes one, the going back to the, re the remain in Mexico policy, which means that people the asylum seekers had to remain in, in Mexico until their their court date is is established. Um, and, and secondly, it, it calls for restarting the border wall. Now, these are two things that are kind of like poison pills. They're, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Senate is controlled by the by the Democrats. It's unlikely that they will pass it. But if by some reason they do, the president has already said that he would veto it. So so why why pursue something that is almost certainly not going to be able to happen? So, so this this is the House's solution. This is what we're saying we would like to see done, right? It's not, and it's it's those border security measures that you mentioned, but it's also exactly what Customs and Border Patrol agents said they needed to get the job done. They wanted more manpower, more training, more resources to get the job done. Technology as well, 
we do that. And, and you know, it would, it would government would be wise to actually listen to those people who are on the ground doing the job and give them what they need. In addition, though, like I said, it's, it does address some visas, some uh, asylum uh, streamlining. But but if the Senate does not like our bill and doesn't want to take up our bill, then they should take up their own bill, pass what they think is ideal, and then let's reconcile the differences. Because that's the only way we're going to move forward here um, together in a bipartisan manner. I would love for the president to just undo his executive orders that created this problem. I mean, quite frankly, you know, he, he created, he can undo it by just changing the policies that he has in place. Aside from that, we need to see bipartisan action to avert this, to this crisis, just like we saw with the debt limit. All right, we're gonna to have to end it there, Congresswoman. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this very important subject. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. After years of bold proposals for Governor's Island and its spectacular views of Lower Manhattan, we finally have a winner. Mayor Eric Adams revealed in late April that the 172-acre site will become home to the New York Climate Exchange, a $700 million campus dedicated to finding solutions to the global climate crisis. The city selected a consortium anchored by Stony Brook University to transform the island into a first-of-its-kind hub for students, researchers, and New Yorkers in need of green job training. Stony Brook University President Mara McInnes helped lead the SUNY school's successful bid to make this happen. And also Dr. Kevin Reed, who is an associate professor at Stony Brook's School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences, whose research focuses on better understanding the impacts of climate change has been involved in this entire bid for this project. And we're delighted to have both of them joining us now tonight as part of our Pearl and Promise initiative. President McKinnis, let me ask you to start with a, a, a quick explanation for us of why and how this entire project came about. Well, this project came about in many ways because of the ambition of the city of New York to figure out how might we approach climate change in a different way. And so they began a process that we entered about two years ago. And we did so because we certainly see climate change as the biggest challenge that our generation and the generations that are going to follow immediately behind us face. And we thought we had ideas of ways to bring bold and innovative solutions to this challenge. And I would say the most important of those is that we were going to work in a different model, that we were going to work through partnerships bringing together a wide range of higher educational institutions, the University of Washington, Georgia Tech, Pace and Pratt, CUNY and NYU, the University of Oxford, RIT, Duke, and major corporate partners, BCG, IBM, Moody's, together with dozens of New York City-based community and environmental action groups. And the idea was that what we need to do is to figure out how to talk across sectors, work together, designing from the beginning real world solutions that can be implemented. And let me give you a chance to brag a little bit about your university here. Mm -hmm. I talked about it essentially being the anchor. How did that come about? I think that came about in many ways because we are of New York. We are a, the leading public institution in New York City area. 
Um, we are of and for New Yorkers, and we have long been leading in many of the areas that are so important to solving this problem, whether that be about coastal resiliency, clean water, climate change, the impacts of uh, weather changes in green energy and battery technology and wind energy. These are things we've been working on for many years. And so we immediately saw an opportunity for us to try to have an impact right here um, in our backyard in New York. Professor Reed, I, I mentioned in the introduction, I'll get back to some of these, but the various components uh, here, some of them have to do with students, some of them have to do with research, practical applications, uh, job training. But I was struck by one, one title, if you would, where it, it said this would be, in essence, a living laboratory. What does that mean? Yeah, so what that means is the fact that the, the technologies that we're going to develop, right, to make this laboratory work, both for the research and the educational needs that you just mentioned, um, is going to be on demonstration and also a testing ground. So as we use new technologies to make this campus, you know, completely carbon neutral and not using extra excess water and excess waste, the idea is that can be a model for the city and beyond, but also that it can be an opportunity for our students and our faculty and our staff from this partnership, as well as community groups, to learn from that laboratory, uh, right, to, to help inform the future uh, uh, research that happens in there, but also how do we help translate that back out uh, all around kind of New York City. And so the in essence, it's really this opportunity to learn from the building itself, right? How we can help to meet our climate goals in New York and in New York City. What will you say to students about the opportunities that this will provide for them as part of their educational and community experience? Oh yeah, so what I would say to the students, well, first I'll start with our undergraduates here at Stony Brook and, and, and with their partners is that this is an opportunity, whether you're an English major or a pre-med major or biology or physics or engineering, right? This is an opportunity for you to spend a semester living on Governor's Island, contributing to the sustainability and that living laboratory that we just talked about, but then bringing that knowledge about climate solutions, environmental justice and impacts and, and ways in which we can cultivate solutions, bringing that back to your studies on campus um, so that it helps to inform your future career and theoretically, right, this future career of, of living in a world that's more green than it is now and, and, and all of the things that need to change in order again for us to meet our, our climate goals as a state of New York. So, so President McGinnis, let me come back to you again. In, in addition to these exciting concepts here, the structure itself, the, the, the physical structure mm -hmm. of the project, I think is, is fairly breathtaking. Give us a quick sense of, of what it's going to look like and why it's so significant. Yeah, I think that is a really important part of our living laboratory. Uh, the buildings that have been designed by our architectural partners, SOM, really both speak to the place. They speak to the undulating curves of the island. They speak to the undulating water that surrounds the island. But the technology employed in the buildings themselves are remarkable. Some of the first use in the city of massive timber on a commercial scale, the employment of totally green energy, geothermal and solar to supply all of the needs of the campus and in fact producing more that we can give back to the city. Circular water systems so that we are 
very efficient in our use of waters. And the idea is that not only our students, faculty and staff who are resident on the campus get to experience this, but so do the hundreds of thousands of visitors who come to the island every year. And that's an important piece of the living laboratory of this project. Professor, back to you for a second. Uh, one of the other aspects of this we talked about is, is the ability to provide green job training. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, okay, this is this is one of the ones that I, I, I'm also very excited about, right? This opportunity here is that amongst uh, a variety of groups throughout the city um, and, and, and the region, there, there is a need right now to help prepare, uh, right? Uh, the workers are building trades, for example, right? For the change that we're, uh, we're, go we're already beginning to see, right? The change in, in the needs and energy efficiency of buildings, the change in maybe the technologies that are being used to heat and cool them. And that as this change kind of rapidly occurs over the next decade plus, uh, there is a real need to kind of provide that information, provide that kind of, you know, uh, constant updates to, you know, the technology as it changes, for example. And so what we're trying to do at the New York Climate Exchange is not to reinvent the wheel, right? We're trying to amplify those existing uh, groups and help provide access to training location. Um, to help provide access to experts, right, to help inform uh, and make sure trainings are up to date. And 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 especially as laws, as we all know, and regulations uh, are constantly changing um, as it relates to meeting our climate goals, uh, but also to just to make sure that a lot of those needed type of training programs are, are have a home base where you go, okay, if we're, we're thinking about changing something or we need to figure out how to make, you know, midtown Manhattan more energy efficient, you know, the one place that you could go to have this conversation would be the New York Climate Exchange. Yeah. Uh, President McInnes, back to you if I can. I talked in the introduction of, about the dollar amount, the cost, if you will, here. And I'm sure some people are saying, well, where is that money coming from? Is that taxpayer dollars? What's the answer to that? Yeah, the majority of this money is going to come from philanthropic support. Um, the city made a commitment in providing a small parcel of land on Governor's Island to the New York Climate Exchange and a little bit of support for the capital construction costs. But the vast majority of this will be raised philanthropically. We have a lead gift from the Simons Foundation of $100 million and an additional $50 million that's already been com committed by Bloomberg Philanthropies. So we're enormously appreciative of our philanthropic partners. Um, and are really excited now that this is public to continue to talk with others who believe in this collaborative cross-sector approach to coming together to work on uh, our solutions for climate change. I, I suspect people are watching, listening, saying what an exciting prospect this is to have this up and running and all the great work it can do. So my question to you is what sort of time frame are we talking about here before this is actually going to be in place? Yeah, uh, like with all projects of this scope and scale, it's going to be a few years until uh, there's going to be that physical presence we can all take advantage of. Um, a couple more years, probably of uh, details related to design. We hope to break ground in 2025, and then we have an anticipated opening of the facility in 2028.